episode of Sean and Ed's Do Baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed's. And we're, uh, what are we doing, Ed's? We're doing baseball. We're doing baseball. Uh, we are a bi-weekly baseball, baseball history podcast where the storyteller, no, story receiver, yes, doesn't know what the storyteller is going to be telling. 100%. That's you this week. That is me this week. I'm very excited to sit back and hear a story and we also have a guest. We have a guest, somebody that's going to be listening along with me. Uh... I thought about his intro for a long time. Yeah, you're he stumbling. Is, I'm stumbling. Yeah, you're stumbling Are, right now? I'm not stumbling. Oh, okay, so You're stumbling. I am. Okay. He is a host and producer at the Fam 590 in Toronto. The nobleman from Nobleton. The Italian stallion. Matt Marchese, everybody. Welcome to the show, Matt. Wow. Thanks for having me, guys. That, <laughs> I don't get those intros when I'm actually on the radio, so I'm 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 on board with this one. I you guys could intro me. I should get you guys to record my intro for when I'm hosting. I like that. <laughs> We'd be happy to. Oh, 100%. 100%. This is Sean Ned's Do Baseball and you're listening to Matt Marchese on the Fan 590. Cut it. Go. Pay us. <laughs> <laughs> and scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. All right. Well, uh, before we get started, I'm so excited. Uh, Matt is a wonderful radio host and actually a, uh, a former, uh, I was going to say colleague, but yeah. it's not colleague. Not really. A former classmate? Classmate, I guess, uh, with, of us. So yeah. We, we went to high school together. We played baseball together. Yeah, I was that really, really bad utility guy that played all over the field but couldn't hit his weight. So, I mean, yeah, I, I remember that that year in grade 11. You guys were in grade 12. Yep. And I always tell people, like, oh, what sports did you play in high school? I was like, I played high school ball, man. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't ball worth nothing. <laughs> yeah. You were, uh, you as you say, you, you moved around the field. You I wasn't even on the, the team. F- yeah, so. well. <laughs> but Matt Matt moved around the field. Uh, he worked hard, and uh, you had a car, so that was a, that was a big plus too. Now, a big big plus was that I had a car. Yeah, I remember that coming up, and I was just like, okay, we, you know what? I get fourth period off, so I mean, there's a nice trade off here. I get to be outside, albeit in a baseball uniform, sitting on a bench, but I get to be outside. I I will never forget, and I'll I'll keep this quick. Um, I got thrown in in like the seventh inning to go play right field. And somebody hit a fly ball to me and everybody's like, I could hear like the ooze because <laughs> nobody thought I was going to catch it. I'm just like, listen, I'm athletic enough to understand and know that I can catch a fly ball. Hit a hard grounder to me in the infield, I'm not getting it. But hit me a fly ball in the outfield, I got a good chance of getting it. So I, I, I heard the uh, I heard the wisecracks as I was coming back to the dugout. And then I'm pretty sure I proceeded to ground out in my next at bat, which is par for the course. So, I mean, that was my baseball career. Whoa, <laughs> I just kicked my mic. Well, I mean, ground outs happen. You, you caught the ball. There you go. That was a highlight. Uh, but having the car would be a nice bargaining <laughs> chip to get on the team, for sure. Oh, wow. Yeah. For for sure. I don't know why we didn't play at a more local baseball diamond in high school. Yeah, I we played in Newmarket and Aurora, and 
It was, it was, you know, that was the other thing. I never got any mileage for driving everybody's asses around that year. Like, I should have really negotiated a little bit better. Yeah. A, a grade 11 student who was playing at a high level of hockey, didn't have time to work, needed some cash. I didn't get a cent for driving people around. Now, I had a blast driving people around because I got to control the music and didn't have to hear the crap that other people were listening to. I mean, there was it wasn't so bad. I remember having to go in and drop grade 11 history for that. I didn't show up for like two weeks. And the teacher apparently asked and said, does anybody know who this guy is? Because I've never even seen him. And uh, and sure enough, um, I, I went in and I, I went to the uh, guidance counselor. And I said, OK, I need to drop this class. They're like, why? I was like, because I'm going to play baseball. And I say play baseball in in asterisks because I was merely just – I was like a glorified mascot at that point. You you um, were a solid bench player, Matt. You were a solid bench player. I Yeah, I, I was I was okay. Like, I mean, I had a couple of RBIs in a preseason tournament. Yep. That was literally the highlight of my high school baseball career, that and catching a fly ball. Yeah. So um, – but, yeah, that was uh, that was fun. And it's, the best part about that was, was that those King City teams – like, for people that don't understand, they were really, really good. Like there's a history of really good baseball players that have gone. And Sean, I don't yeah. even mean to toot your horn. Like you were one of the guys that went through there. That was a really good ball player. And guys went on to scholarships and like, th- there was a lot of really good players that went there. So I was like, I was just happy to be on the team. The best, my favorite part was when we got to pick our numbers and I did this purposely to piss off the guy that wore it before me because I knew who he was and he was really good. And I took Chris Haynes's number, number 22. (laughs) And when he found out he was livid because, (laughs) because he knew how trash I was. And he's like, this guy took my number. Like, are you serious? I did it on purpose. He was upset. You were tarnishing the legacy of 22. Pretty much. Yeah. As he should have been, as he should have been. Haynes was good. it, It may have been, it may have been in jest, and I've spoken to Chris a lot since then. So I mean, um, but yeah, there was. <laughs> I look at I look at the talent that went through there. Like, yeah, King it, City has had some pretty special ball players. Yeah, and and to our American American audiences uh, out there, uh, this is. Uh, Matt, I love that Matt is talking about how good our baseball program was, but we had to drive ourselves to games. Yeah, uh, that would not happen in the <laughs> no, United States. No. Uh, but no. uh, we'd have a team bus down there. But uh, in Canada, if you got a good baseball program, and you know. You got a nice minivan to go to the game. Mm-hmm. That's right. You can pile in the gym teacher's minivan. <laughs> exactly. Bow a joke. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. Let's get going with this story. Before we start, follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball. Follow us on Instagram at Doing Dot Baseball. There you go. Uh, give us a like and a review. That's always awesome. And uh, yeah, let us know if there's any subjects you want to hear about. Uh, so let's do this. So Edzie's got a story for us, Matt. Uh, we're going to sit back and. Uh, Enjoy. Yeah, Yeah. I hope so. I hope you're going to enjoy anyway. I just wanted to start it and say Matt kind of mentioned how he had to make a choice there between history class and baseball. Mm -hmm. And this uh, gentleman, he doesn't choose between history class and baseball, but at some point he does have to choose between something in baseball. But uh, anyway, I'm going to start... The story here saying I'd like to begin by this one has a bit of a local flavor. We've been telling a few stories that have some local flavor lately. It's not, it's a bit of a short touch in the local grounds. It doesn't really come up until the end. Okay. We'll uh, have to see how that comes into play. But 
I was inspired to write this very obscure story by a very obscure reference on uh, an animated comedy called Archer. Archer? Yes. You got this story from watching Archer on Netflix or whatever? Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and by the, so- by the sounds of how things ultimately unfolded, a secret agent like Archer could have been very useful to the two men involved in this cross-border kerfuffle. All right. This man, who I'm talking about, shoveled his way into the majors. Two years later, he was across town for his rival uh, Dodgers. Mm-hmm. He came up with the Giants, and two years later, tragedy struck. So, January 18th, 1904, Leonard George Konecki is born in Baraboo, Wisconsin, United States of America. Have either of you guys heard of Leonard Konecki? It sounds familiar, but I'm not. I'm, it's not I, I can't a bell. say. I can't say that I have. Okay. Well, let's. Sure, find... he was a good dude, though. <laughs> I, I imagine he was a fairly good guy. Uh, let's find out about him. Baraboo was a small rural town about 40 miles northwest of the capital in Madison. Uh, his father, Herman O. Konecki, was a railroad engineer, and his mother, Lydia Nay Steffen. They were both Wisconsin natives of German Lutheran descent. Uh, after completing grammar school locally, Len went on to attend the regional high school in nearby Friendship, graduating in 1924. I'm gathering Friendship is a place? Yes. Not just like a place in our hearts? No, it's an actual place. Okay. Uh, <laughs> apparently, we should we maybe should have checked that out. We were near. We were in Wisconsin at one point. We were in Wisconsin at one point. Our friendship lived in Wisconsin Our at friendship one point. did live in Wisconsin. <laughs> Uh, apparently, Len played little baseball while in high school and seemed destined to follow in his father's footsteps as he began work for a railroad company as well. That sounds a lot like my baseball career. In there high you school, go. Too. Didn't play a lot of baseball, especially when he was on the team. <laughs> well, not to give too much away, but you definitely don't end up to be the Len Konecki of King City Baseball. Anyway. Um, I, I Based on the tragedy part, I hope not. Yeah, not. Yeah. Uh, Konecki became a fireman for the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad, uh, where the hard work helped him develop a powerful physique. Stoking locomotive engines and other labors of his position soon built up an impressive upper torso on the five foot eleven, one hundred and eighty pound Konecki. Dude so, was built. Yeah. So just to clarify, I originally thought he was like someone who would fight fires on the train, but he was actually he was shoveling the coal oh. into the engine. So he was the so fire. That's how he shoveled his way yeah. to the major. Right. I was. Right. Li- I, I listened it. to that part and I was like, "Did you mean to say shoving?" No. 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 no he, he literally shoveled, shoveled he, his way. I thought maybe he like dug a hole in the Dodger Stadium or something. No. All great guesses. All great guesses. But no. No. He just literally shoveled coal into the fire furnace of a locomotive. So Len is getting all beefed up, shoveling coal into the engines of locomotives, and this catches the eye of one of his co-workers, uh, former minor leaguer Murray Boyle, who had become a friendly railway brakeman on the same railway line. I like how you use friendly. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's, you know... He, 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 he befriended young Len, so I assume he was pretty friendly. Hey, Len, you're looking pretty good there, shoveling coal. Yeah. Ever heard of baseball? That's right. No, I haven't, actually. Does it have anything to do with shoveling? I don't know. 
because I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> uh, when Boyle was off duty, he two-hatted as manager of the town baseball club in Escanaba, Michigan, which was a stop along the Chicago Northwestern line. One, do- one day, Boyle found himself short of players, and with Len's muscular physique, Boyle thought that Konecki might be a rather suitable substitute and worked at convincing him to get into uniform, and when he did, he handed him the catcher's mitt. Should be splitting these pages. Like, for a guy that's never, for a guy that's never played, <laughs> yeah. the last thing that you want to do is catch. It's yeah. the hardest <laughs> position to play. Absolutely. That's what I thought, so, too, but I guess Len doesn't know any better. Well, especially so this, guy, just... so this guy's a bad manager. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He's not good. <laughs> uh, he was unpolished defensively. But the left-handed batting and right-handed throwing Konecki was a natural hitter and quickly made good with the bat. He took a leave of absence from his railroad job, and Len spent the rest of the summer playing baseball for Escanaba and other local nines. At season's end, he returned to working for the railroad. The following summer, Konecki resumed playing ball, joining town and semi-pro teams in both Michigan and Wisconsin. So, Len is making his way. He's not great in the field, or with the glove, but simply due to lack of experience. And because of his natural skills with the stick, baseball men were willing to give Konecki a chance. And in 1927, he became a professional. <laughs> From the train to the ball field. Yeah, pretty quick. Like, what a... Yeah, seriously. Like, what were these people thinking? Yeah. Like, the, and now I know. I know. Back then, it was just like you pick. Guy, it was. It's like the Moonlight Graham thing from Field of Dreams. Like, hey, you want to go play baseball? Okay, we got a spot on the team. <laughs> there we go. Now, Come on, kid, jump now, on the train. Yeah. Yeah, and this is the exact same thing. Like, think about how crazy it would be today that a guy with talent would go unnoticed, like this guy who was shoveling coal into a locomotive engine. Like, okay, Unt- sure, and, I'm on board. And probably this. wouldn't. Even even have been discovered if that dude if his co-worker wasn't also a manager yeah because <laughs> you and wouldn't even have to have two jobs like that yeah, these days but. Ex- exactly it's all just it that's why we do this because <laughs> yeah a <laughs> hundred years ago baseball was just Nothing like you're sense. on the team <laughs> <laughs> So, in 1927, Konecki began his pro career in Illinois by signing as a catcher with the Springfield Senators of the Class B 3I League. Len, quote, showed plenty of power at the plate in early exhibition games, but a shaky arm and a woeful lack of experience, which is what the Daily Illinois uh, Journal recalled in a 1930 story. So, right away, as we're all saying, not very good at his position. No. Uh... Len didn't fare very well with Springfield and found himself cut from the team, but he was picked up by the Moline Plowboys of the Class D Mississippi Valley League, where he was quickly converted into an outfielder. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the Plowboys know what to do with him. Right. That's yeah, what you do with another, a new guy. <laughs> that's another thing that we don't talk about enough is how incredible some of these names were of these teams. Like, Plowboys is not something that I would have ever thought would have been a name of any team, let alone a baseball team. Yeah, I, I highly encourage. Uh, minor League Baseball and, and NCAA Baseball in the United States to this day still has some absolutely, absolutely baller names out yeah. there. But, yes, Plowboys okay. is, yeah, there's some just, well... What's the one that we always talk about that went away in the 1800s? The whoopie pies? 
<laughs> whoopie pies. Hey, hey, if you get if you make a good whoopie pie, I mean, those are delicious. <laughs> See, he knows. He knows. Well, you know too, because you no, go to the festival. No, I'm not talking about pies. I was talking about a baseball team. Anyways, continue. <laughs> okay, so Len is a defensive liability behind the plate, but his bat is still very strong. So you put him in the outfield. That's right. So there they put him go. out in the outfield, and he eats up the class D pitching because he's like couple levels lower now yeah or one level lower so he batted 343 and led the league with 20 home runs mm-hmm. when the uh mississippi valley league campaign ended konecki was called up to the highest echelon of the minor leagues he joined the indianapolis indians of the double a american association and in 17 late season games len went on a torrid pace going 28 for 71 for a 394 average with 12 extra base hits. 704 slugging percentage, thereby establishing himself as a true major league prospect. So now he's got the eyes of, of the major leagues on him. So how many years did it take him to go from the train to to number one prospect territory? Well, he's not number one prospect, but pretty much uh, two years. He uh, yeah. so. So the whole problem started with him being a catcher, and as soon as they took that burden off of him, he just became a star. That's right. And, uh, and how and how old was he at this time? Uh, you know? He was born in 1904, so he'd be uh, 25. Yeah, 25, 26, right? Yeah. So a, yeah, so a very late bloomer. Yeah. I, see, I should I should have stuck with it. I had a shot. <laughs> I had a shot. Yeah. Except I couldn't hit. Yeah. That's what we're trying to to prove by telling this story, Matt. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> However, in 19... No, not that you couldn't hit. That you should have stuck with it. <laughs> it's like, I was I, like, that's I, really I, mean, man. It was, it was very well really proven like, that I couldn't hit. Nothing was going to change that. <laughs> Maybe you should have shoveled more coal. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. I knew there was something missing in my regiment. I knew it was shoveling right. coal. Exactly. That's what I'm telling all my players from now on. <laughs> Don't go to college. Just get a trained job. You'll be in the majors by 25. <laughs> So, and you can take that to the bank. That's right. <laughs> Write that down. Write that down. So, as I said, he's a true major league prospect now. And However, in 1929, Len had allegedly shoveled too much coal and stoked too many fires in the offseason, and he was left muscle-bound and was unable to get himself limber in time for the season, so he got off to a slow start. He was muscle-bound. Yeah, that was a common thing back in the day that they used to blame... Did they For slow starts to be like, oh, he's too buff. He can't. They don't want. You don't want to work out too much in the off season because then you, you know you'll be stuck up like this with your muscles all tight and you did won't they, be able to swing the bat. Did they hear about stretching back in 1929? Apparently not. <laughs> According no, to this, no, no, no stretching <laughs> wasn't a thing. I, I can say that no one has ever mistaken me for being muscle bound. That is, that is one thing for sure. Absolutely certain. not. I, I, you know what though? Like just as a quick aside here, like when you look at like even pictures of like legendary hockey player Gordy Howe, he was a monster. Yeah. And he bailed hay all summer. Exactly. Like, exactly. You don't need a gym. Go work at a farm. Yeah. Go shovel coal into a tree. Yeah, It'll that's the prairie equivalent of shoveling coal, apparently. Oh, hundred percent. Remember remember Randy Schwartz? He was just a farmhand that just absolutely just a farm boy. Yeah, he was huge. Doc Halliday. Oh, it was it everybody. Just, just, yeah, shovel coal, throw hay. That, that's how you become a ball player. Okay, so after Len's slow start, he was eventually relegated to another squad in the 3I League, uh, the Quincy Indians. 
And it took a while for Konecki to return to form at the plate, but he eventually did as he hit 325 with 44 extra base hits. And he was then recalled to Indianapolis where he hit 316 in a 32 game stint. So he's, he's, he's effective against all this minor league pitching. Uh, in 1930, he married an Indiana woman, Gladys Stoltenberg, and they later had one daughter, Anna, in 1932. Uh, he returned to Springfield in 1930, where he'd begun his pro career, and he owned the 3 I league pitching once again for a 349 batting average in 58 games, and was again summoned to Indianapolis for a third time. But for the first time in his minor league career, Konecki had a slump at the plate. In 67 games, he batted 250 for Indianapolis. At the end of the baseball season, Len Konecki again returned to his off-season job, stoking the engine fires for the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad Company, where he was given an ultimatum. Thrust upon him by his employers who had grown impatient with Konecki's routine summer absences from his job. So now Len can focus entirely on baseball. And it paid off with an American Association All-Star selection and a 353 average with a league-leading 19 triples and 24 homers. Holy sm- 19 triples and 24 home runs? Yeah, that's like, good. I, I, don't, I don't think we're talking about how incredible these numbers are considering that this guy barely played baseball, if he played baseball at all growing up. Yeah. And I don't care what era you played in. If you put up those types of numbers without actually playing baseball, that's uh, last time I checked pretty damn good. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I just want to say how much triples just come in. Anytime we do any episodes from, you know, 1880 to, you know, 1940, there's so many triples. Yeah. Triples are a big part nobody, of it. Nobody tries for triples anymore. No. Bad infielders. Bad, bad infielders. <laughs> So that pretty much covers Konecki's come up through the minor leagues. Yeah. So he was a good player, but since Indianapolis was at this time not an affiliated club, he had essentially hit his ceiling in the minor leagues unless someone was willing to, you know, pluck him from that team, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, so let's focus over to New York for a second where Giants manager and friend of the show John McGraw was having a hard time. Ooh. Okay. It had been seven seasons since the last pennant for the Giants, mm-hmm. and McGraw was looking for some new blood in hopes of returning to National League glory. A story in the Sporting News, April 30th, 1952, recalled that in 1931, McGraw had become smitten by the reports of a budding second baseman with the Louisville Colonels named Billy Herman. And the little Napoleon left his club in Cincinnati and traveled 100 miles to personally scout him. McGraw declared the kid to be of insufficient build to withstand the rigors of National League Baseball. However, he proclaimed upon his return, My trip was not in vain. I saw a great outfielder with the Indianapolis Cub. His name is Len Konecki. I bought him for a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) I went to see this guy. He was weak. But this other guy shoveled coal, so I bought him. <laughs> How much did he buy him for? Does well, it say? We'll get, we'll get to that in a second. All right. But I just want to mention that Billy Herman went on to a Hall of Fame career with the Cubs. Jesus. Oops. That I yeah. love I love the the scouting back then. There's yeah. a ball player. Come check him out. <laughs> hey, he's not very strong. He's weak. So I'm going to pick up this other guy who looks very muscle-bound in the outfield. <laughs> 
So yeah, come come check them out and then go watch the circus. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, honestly, you're touching upon so many things in my next story right now too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, am I really? Not not right. not like actual, but just just similar okay. events in a similar timeline. Okay. So regardless, at the time McGraw liked what he saw in Len, uh-huh. and after he took in several Indianapolis games from the grandstands, McGraw offered Indians club owner N. A. Perry. $75,000 for Konecki's rights. Wow. Yeah. Like, that's not, that's not chump change now, well, for us. No, but that, yeah. But, like, imagine, imagine 75 k for a guy that's barely played, although, <laughs> albeit very good. In 1931. Like, yeah, in yeah. That is uh, probably, you know, in the millions. Yeah. It's the same amount of money in the Depression. Yeah. So, Perry was willing to part with Konecki, but strangely, given the times, he wanted players rather than cash in exchange for him. Okay. So, um, uh, this was kind of an early version of the player-to-be-named-later deal, I guess you could say. Wow. Because apparently over time, according to a few accounts in the Associated Press, Indianapolis would eventually receive pitchers Joe Heving and Jack Burley, outfielder Harry Rosenberg and pitcher outfielder Johnny Cooney in exchange for Konecki's services. So they eventually got four players. I think they did like get some money or pay some money as well. Yeah, but, okay. Um, so he's traded for straight up instead right. of bought. Right. Even though he kind of was bought. Right. It started with money and it ended up with four, four players. Right. So, um, like I say, John McGraw has got his guy. Mm -hmm. The vote of confidence from one of the game's most respected men spurred an uncharacteristic swagger to the normally modest outfielder when he showed up to the Giants' 1932 West Coast camp. Quote, I ought to make good, Konecki declared upon reaching Los Angeles in February. I hit 353 in the American Association and had plenty of triples. None of these cheap home runs for me. There you go. Yeah. So he's trying for the triples. He's trying. That's none of these cheap home runs. Maybe my favorite line of yeah. all time. <laughs> like the easiest way to score is to hit a home run. Yeah. Last time I checked, but hey, I don't want any of them stinking home runs. And by the way, <laughs> I did look up an inflation cal uh, calculator yeah. because I'm always curious about dumb stuff like that. Yeah. Seventy-five thousand dollars is one point two million dollars. Holy shit! There you go. In inflation. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So big bucks. That is big bucks. But man, he likes triples. <laughs> I love the backwards way of way, way of thinking in in baseball back in the day. Just stolen bases and triples all day long. <laughs> <laughs> So, Len showed his power and made good on his reputation in early exhibition games, and he was given the starting post in left field when the Giants traded Fred Leach to the Red Sox early in the season. So, on April 12, 1932, Len Konecki made his Major League debut against right-hander Phil Collins at New York's Polo Grounds, going 0-4 with a hit-by-pitch in a 13-5 loss to the Philadelphia Phillies. He impressed slightly when he went two for five with a home run off Boston's Ben Cantwell a few days later, but for the most part, his hitting did not meet expectations and his fielding defense didn't help his cause either. So he's still like not, he's you not know, he's, great. he's in the outfield, he but he's still not great. If he can't hit like, yeah, there's, yeah. he's just, he's just a big dude. He's Mark McGuire. He's, he's like the opposite of Kevin Pillar. Yeah. Yeah. He is. <laughs> he, <laughs> He's a million-dollar player who can't do anything at the major league level. That's right. And, oh, yeah, the guy that you didn't want went on to a Hall of Fame career. Exactly. Oops. Yeah. How's that, McGraw? <laughs> <laughs> 
So things got worse for Len when ailing manager John McGraw resigned unexpectedly and the Giants' helm was taken by first baseman Bill Terry. Terry was not exactly a member of the Leonard Konecki fan club and Len's playing time was reduced significantly. Len went 0 for 4 on June 9th and was optioned to the Jersey City Skeeters of the AA International League. So he's McGraw's guy and now McGraw's gone. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, and, he's, he's and basically he's gone. Yeah, he's fucked. Can. He's <laughs> pretty, pretty much. He is. Uh, yeah, no, no, nothing is worse than being in an organization and then having management change and being like, ah, that guy had to play me because he made that big deal for me. This guy yeah, has no care. connection to yeah. that. Yeah. But, but wait, d- did he have a car, though? That's what we want. <laughs> yeah. If he had a car, then he has some value. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Apparently not, because he's down in New Jersey now. Yeah. Uh, but while he was in New Jersey, he recovered his pop, and he earned a chance to be recalled by the Giants in late September after he batted three fifty-five in 95 games. But again, Major League pitching proved to be too much for Konecki, and that offseason, the Giants severed ties with Len and sold his contract to the Buffalo Bisons. Oof. So, in 1933, Len batted 334 with a robust 59 extra base hits and was named to the International League All-Star team mm-hmm. and also made vast improvements to his defense. Konecki had a relatively late start in the game, as we were mentioning pretty much this whole episode, but he had all the tools for competent outfield play and finally began to show it with the Bisons. He posted a respectable 980 fielding average in 161 games. Konecki's improvements in all facets of the game did not go unnoticed, so in late June, the Brooklyn Dodgers purchased his contract from Buffalo and directed him to report as soon as the International League season ended. So he keeps going, he goes up to the majors a couple times there and he just struggles, but every time he goes down to the minors, he's just ripping it up. He's just like a 4A player, essentially. Yeah. He's 4A. Yeah, player. I was going to say yeah. that the, t- the typical, and you've seen it so much over the course of history, the guy that everybody thinks is just going to light it up at the next level and just for whatever reason, just can't. And yeah. maybe it's because he didn't want any of those stinking home runs. I don't know. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, we'll see. We'll see if he's uh, if he's like a Justin Smoke or if he's a uh, who's someone that floundered. What's that? What's what's his first name? I don't know. Tyler White or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, anyways. <laughs> so uh, unfortunately, though, at, for Konecki's major league chances in 1933, the Bisons made it all the way to the Junior World Series. <laughs> so he's sitting on that team, yeah, in the, like the international championship, just being like, "Fuck, I could that's, be playing on the Dodgers." That's right. And they lost to Aww. Columbus. So by the time Buffalo was finished, yeah, so were the Dodgers. Yeah. So. Uh, Luckily for the Dodgers, though, in 1934, Brooklyn got the player the Giants thought they had purchased three seasons before. So now he's living up to the one million or whatever it is. This 1.2 million, what'd you say it is these days? Yeah, yeah, about 1.2 million now. Yeah. So uh, as the common trope at the time stated, quote, the $75,000 lemon became the $75,000 peach. Ooh. Fruit oh, metaphors. what a play on words! Yeah. That is that is su- that is such an old timey. Uh, <laughs> that guy's a lemon. <laughs> now nah, he's a peach now. <laughs> <laughs> so Konecki sustained success both offensively and in the field, becoming one of the few bright spots of the Dodgers that season, who finished ten games below five hundred. 
Len's 320 batting average was second only to Sam Leslie and was laden with plenty of power, collecting 52 hits for extra bases, while an outstanding walk-to-K ratio of 70-38 yielded a 4-11 on-base percentage. Did you say 70-38? Yeah. Walk-to-K? Yeah. So he's walking almost twice as much as he strikes That's out. right. That's yeah. good. Yeah. Getting on and base. He's, at, a, he's a patient man. Yeah. That's right. Getting on base at 4-11. Under the guidance of manager and prankster, friend of the show, Casey Stangle, who was himself a former Brooklyn outfielder, Konecki's fielding became outstanding. Stangle personally drilled Konecki and put him through the paces until he caught anything that came near him. When the Dodgers headed north to start the 1934 season, the former defensive liability had improved so much that he committed only two errors in 318 chances, good for a 994 fielding percentage, which set a new National League single-season record by an outfielder. Holy. Yeah. So this guy, this guy just needed time like god like imagine that what a thought that the guy just needed more time to play baseball and he was naturally gifted that's right and he needed casey stangle to scare the shit out of him as (laughs) yeah and that probably helped (laughs) and he needed to cut his shoveling down so he wasn't so muscle bound obviously once he got rid of that he just excelled yeah yeah he just he became all old noodle arms that's right old noodle arms kaneki yeah Uh, Throughout it all, Konecki remained low-key and garnered little press. He was professional during games, quiet in the clubhouse, and a colorless family man away from the diamond. So he's not generating any news or anything. He's just quietly going about his business. Mm -hmm. So back home in Wisconsin during the off-season, a winter on the local banquet circuit brought Konecki to Dodgers spring camp overweight and when the regular season rolled around, Len was unable to reproduce the performance of 1934. So now he's getting all this praise and everyone wants him to come to their banquets and shit. So like he's going and having these big extravagant roast beef meals, I guess. And yeah. he, he comes to camp fat in 1935, which was obviously a disappointment to Stangle. <laughs> That's uh, what happens when you're successful in the old days. You're like, yeah. I can afford to eat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, they have this thing called food? I never saw this before. It is the middle of the depression. Yeah, it's yeah. the depression. Yeah. Uh, by mid-September, Konecki's batting average was well below expectations, and his power numbers had fallen significantly. His fielding also regressed, with eight errors committed in only 86 games of outfield play. Finally, the Dodgers, who were 27 games out of first place and hopelessly behind in the pennant contest, Stangle decided to make some personnel moves in order to get a look at three young new players. On September 15, 1935, Stangle sent Konecki to the plate as a ninth-inning pinch hitter against Chicago Cubs right-hander Bill Lee, who had taken an acid tab in 1975 and traveled back 40 years in time. (laughs) Bill Lee is getting it. I almost did Bill Lee for this for my upcoming episode, but I did not. Okay, and and I would not be surprised if Bill Lee actually did that oh. and then believed that he was back in 1950. Yes. Oh, oh, like, there's nothing surprising. Matt, we'll have to have you back for the Bill Lee episode. Yeah. <laughs> I've I've had Bill Lee on a couple of my shows, and I've dealt with Bill Lee. He really? Is, uh, yeah. Oh yeah, my I'll, I'll goodness. Be, I'll be available for the Billy. Okay. <laughs> you could do the Billy episode if you want it. <laughs> so Len grounded out. After the 6-3 loss, the Dodgers headed for St. Louis to begin a series against the Cardinals. Stangle informed Konecki and pitchers Les Munns and Bob Barr that their seasons were over. 
Wait, I just realized we're probably not talking about the same Bill Lee, are we? No, absolutely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> if I was producing a show and that Bill Lee was on it, yeah. he would have been... Very, yeah, very I, I just realized what year we were talking about. I was like, wait a minute, this is like the 70s? I'm was, like, no, yeah, that was just a third. joke about Spaceman. No, I, it went right over my head, man. I was. That's the joke. <laughs> uh, so these uh, two pitchers, Les Munns, Bob yep. Barr, and, and uh, Kanaki are getting sent down, and their roster spots would be taken by minor league prospects that Stango wanted to see in action before this. And before the start of the first game in St. Louis, the three were given their paychecks and then booked aboard an American Airlines flight back to New York via Chicago and Detroit. So they got a couple stopovers to go. Oh, okay. This is back when, you know, flight was still pretty new. So Generally, you know. yeah, yeah. It's only about 20 years old at this point. As yeah. We know from our... Ruth Law episode. Yeah. So now Lenny was not previously known as a drinker, mm-hmm. but apparently Konecki appeared to show up drunk to the airport in St. Louis and boarded the plane with a bottle of whiskey in hand. All right. All right. He's having a time. Yeah. Nevertheless, the flight to Chicago was uneventful. However, this was not the case on the trip to Detroit and problems with the drunken Konecki began to arise. Lenny became belligerent, argued with fellow passengers, and knocked down a stewardess named Eleanor Woodward when she tried to intervene. He then challenged another passenger to a fight and spent the remainder of the flight chained to his street seat, <laughs> guarded by the plane's large co-pilot, R.C. Pickering. <laughs> R.C. Yeah. I'm not going to... This sound. This sounds like some of the high school parties that. <laughs> I want to shake like, your hand. Yeah, like, <laughs> like essentially, Len, what happened? <laughs> Len Konechny would have fit right in yeah. at, our, at our high school. There you go. <laughs> if anybody knows the, the 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 YouTube video of the man just plastered on a plane, <laughs> I want to shake your hand. That's a set. That, yeah, that's the grandson of uh, of Len Konechny. Apparently, that's Ken. <laughs> that's Ken Konechny. Ken Konechny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, when they landed in Detroit, Konecki was kicked off the flight and his fare to New York was refunded. When last seen by travel mates Munns and Barr, Konecki was sleeping off his stupor in the airport lounge. The two then reboarded the plane to New York and left Konecki behind. Mm-hmm. So, Lenny is stranded in Detroit. Not really stranded i suppose but he's just sleeping it off. yeah he doesn't have he doesn't have a ride home at this time and he's sleeping this drunk off so he wakes up a little bit after midnight in the airport and spots william mulqueeny in the terminal have you heard of william mulqueeny no matt william mulqueeny i i can't say that that is familiar <laughs> i don't why would you ask that of course we don't know who i know that's Mil- what i, I, I like william mcqueen is, isn't his brother jerry mulqueeny like that's I think right I him. that's right no really? no mulqueeny oh, no. <laughs> was a charter flight pilot uh-huh. and konecki was able to negotiate for a flight to buffalo the two men were accompanied by Irwin davis who was a friend of mulqueeny's that made his living as a parachuting daredevil known as the human bat <laughs> okay. All right. So these three dudes are, are up in this this six-seater plane now. Yeah. So Konecki was early on well-behaved, but he began acting up in Canadian airspace. First, he began nudging pilot Mulqueeny in the shoulder, possibly as an attempt to be funny in a drunken state of mind. Uh-huh. So you're flying out. He's like, hey, <laughs> is it, stop nudging my shoulder. 
isn't that the last thing that you want to do when somebody's <laughs> to playing a pilot? It's like, hey, hey, let's see what this will do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And let me just state why, because Mulqueeny continuously insisted that Konecki cut it out as there was obviously no autopilot at the time. Nope. And any sudden moves at the controls could prove to be very costly for the airborne passengers. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Nonetheless, Konecki persisted. And then at one point attempted to take the controls himself. Oh. At which the point the pilot and his pal Davis had had enough. Yes. Obviously. They're ready to throw him out the window. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. When he was ordered to the backseat of the plane, Konecki started a fight with the much smaller Davis, who had no chance to hold back the powerful ball player and former fire stoker. Jesus. Moments later, Konecki attempted to seize the controls of the plane from Mulqueeny, who himself was a decent-sized man and a former football lineman at the University of Detroit. So these two huge dudes are fighting for controls of an airplane what? while it's flying over, like, Lake Erie. Oh, my God. And oh there's, like, God. a little daredevil dude yeah. that's, that's already been subdued by this, one this of is, them. This is, like, my nightmare right now. Yeah. This, yeah. Is, this is absolutely my nightmare right now, thinking about... Like and this is not a big plane either. So no, any move, no, it's, it's probably like, shaking all over the place. Yeah, and it's a six seater oh, yeah. with two of the guys. That's a, it's a professional athlete or two professional athletes mm. in a space for a very small people. Yeah. So both Davis and Mulqueeny later said they were convinced Konecki was trying to crash the plane. Davis tried to fight Konecki back, but the big man pounded on him, even bit his shoulder, oh. and then pounded on him some more. <laughs> I like the little anecdote about biting the shoulder. Yeah. Because yeah. As if, as as if a getting caveat. the crap beat out of you wasn't, wasn't bad enough. Now, he got bit, too. Yeah. He was a scrapper, man. You gotta do anything you can. <laughs> so, the plane lurched through the skies as the two big men fought for command of the aircraft. In desperation, Mulqueeny reached for the airplane's fire extinguisher and bashed Konecki in the head several times. Oh. The brutal blows left Konecki bleeding and motionless on the cabin floor. Jesus fucking... <laughs> this, is like, this is a movie. Yeah, this is yeah, this is a movie scene. With the aircraft now lost and off course somewhere over Canada, the tattered aviator <laughs> looked for a suitable landing space that would be large enough to touch down. Mulqueeny spotted the grounds of the Long Branch racetrack located in the Toronto suburb of Etobicoke. Wow! <laughs> wow! And brought the plane safely to the ground. Those responding to the scene discovered the lifeless body of a 31-year-old Len Konecki in the rear of the passenger compartment. An autopsy, the cause of death, was determined to be a cerebral hemorrhage, hemorrhage caused by the head trauma. Yeah, looks like somebody beat him with a fire extinguisher. <laughs> yeah, I, and, and they probably threw the fire extinguisher out the window. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Maybe, yeah, no, I'm getting super conspiratorial over this right away. I'm like, maybe he was just murdered by these two guys. Mm-hmm. Mulqueeny and Davis were taken into police custody on charges of involuntary manslaughter okay. and bound over pending a coroner's inquest. Defense counsel Edward J. Murphy worked the media and appealed to the masses, loudly proclaimed his client's innocence, and asserted that Konecki had, quote, wanted to die a spectacular death as a result of his drunken despondency. Okay. He's just, you know, trying, making a... 
outlandish claims to, you know, defend his clients, I guess. Well, yeah, like, unless he was screaming, I want to crash the plane, like, you don't really know what Konecki was, was doing. No, no, exactly. But anyway, the legal proceedings that ensued were basically a formality conducted amidst uh, much fanfare and attention from the general public. Professor Joslyn Rogers, testifying as an expert in pathology, informed the coroner's jury that traces of alcohol had been detected in Konecki's vital organs and opined that, quote, this would naturally cause a man, if inclined to be quarrelsome, to become violent. So if he's naturally inclined to be violent, him getting drunk is probably going to make him violent. Essentially <laughs> yeah. what he's saying. Some good science right there. Yeah. Uh, the question of causation, however, was not resolved by the panel. Whatever prompted Konecki's behavior, the jury was satisfied that he had placed the airplane and its occupants in grave peril and that Mulqueeny and Davis had acted justifiably in self-defense. The yeah, imagine wanting to stay alive. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah you know what? I'm not, I don't think I want to let this dude crash this plane today. Uh, I don't know. I don't think we... Uh, we can't hurt him. <laughs> <laughs> so the inquest was uh, closed without any criminal charges being laid. Uh, so that's the story of how Len Konecki rose from the depths of obscurity and escaped his destiny on the railroad with the help of a former player. And how his natural raw talent brought him all the way to the big leagues, but an unfortunate turn of events made him unofficially the first commercial airline hijacker in history. What? And sadly cut his life wow. short as he, be as he came to his final resting place just a few miles from here. Oh my god, yeah, that's literally a few miles or a few kilometers from where we're recording this right now. Uh... I was not waiting for that turn, especially at the end, the first commercial hijacker. I, yeah. I, I was like, thinking... I was not expecting that. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a stretch. Like, I, you can't... I don't know if you could really say he was, like, a commercial hijacker or trying to hijack the plane, but, like, <laughs> he's definitely screwing around in shop class up there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's... I, it, the, the fact, like, I thought we were going to, like, a tragic plane crash. Like, that's where I thought this story that, yeah, was going. Yeah, me too. Uh, it was... Yeah, and and then the fact that the I forgot all about the local flavor you talked about, and I have one question: How the fuck did you hear about that on Archer? Well, it's not that yeah, I saw it on Archer. I, <laughs> I just like was researching odd baseball stories, and then someone like it kind of came up in a Reddit post oh. about obscure jokes or whatever, ah. and and. Uh, what happens, essentially the same thing happens in the episode. Uh, oh, okay. Archer and his companions are flying in the plane, and Archer is a little bit inebriated, I believe, and is nudging the arm, gets hit with the uh, fire extinguisher, okay. and then, you know, says, that's how Len Konecki died, you know. Ah. <laughs> that is amazing. Amazing. All that right, is well. that is a great way to tie all that together. I, I'm, I'm very impressed by that. Yeah. That was... Uh, but you know what? Like, if you... if. <laughs> Over the course of the story, like you, you start to really cheer for the guy, and then how quickly it turns is like this guy's kind of a d bag. Like yeah. he, he kind of, he kind of turned into a jerk at the end because he couldn't handle his alcohol, and clearly this guy had other issues because he couldn't handle getting sent down. Yeah. But he should have been really grateful in saying like, I really shouldn't have ever been in the majors. I should have probably been <laughs> yeah, shoveling right. coal on a train, a, an engine. Yeah, like. The, the arc for this guy, the the way it just kind of turns and you're expecting some sort of greatness and he finally hits it 
And then he gets fat like the rest of us. <laughs> and then his baseball career goes to hell. And then he's just like, well, I'm just going to crash a plane. And I'm going to go out the way I want to go out. Here. As you do. Except, except, spoiler alert, you got hit in the back of the head with a fire extinguisher. And now you're dead. Yeah. In a Tobacco of yeah. all places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah not, I'm sure a Tobacco was not on his list of destinations. Like, you know what? If I want to die somewhere, it's in a Tobacco in Canada. Can we? The other thing is that we didn't. Like, what path were these guys flying that they ended? Like, did this guy nudge the plane so much? Obviously. That they obviously yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they had to have just gone off. Course. It's not like they had modern instruments to, you know, they didn't have GPS to be like, this is where they, they might have, after they retook control of the plane, might have just had no idea where they were. And well, they looked. At, they looked at the sun and went, "Ah, we're in a tobacco." <laughs> well, well, he had he had he had been awoken after midnight, so I'm I'm kind it, of it assuming dark. they may have flown at night. Oh, okay, yeah, which is even sketchier at the yeah. time because uh, they were they were flying from okay, so he Detroit was in, to Buffalo. Yeah, that there's no there's there's well, I guess I guess you could kind of make the argument that they were flying in that sort of direction because. Detroit, if I'm not mistaken, see, I should have taken geography too along with history. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, That's... is a little bit further north than Buffalo. So I guess in theory, you could fly over, yeah. you know, the Toronto area to get to Buffalo. But again, like you said, it's like well, they didn't know where the hell they were. They, they could have ended up in friggin' Alaska. They had no idea. No way. Kidding. Wow. I mean that was that was awesome, Ed. Uh, I had no idea I was in for that, and my goodness, uh, I got one in the in the chamber for you guys, and and it the parallels are kind of weirdly similar, and we we had no discussion about this. No, before. we never do, but that's always interesting when that ends up happening. Yeah. So Matt, uh, tell us uh, or tell our our audience uh, where they can find you and uh, where they can hear your beautiful beautiful voice. So you can follow me on Twitter at MattyMar89. Um, you can I do some some work for Sportsnet.ca, so you can check out my stuff there. Um, and you can also listen to me because I don't know when I'm going to be on. Uh, I'll be on. You, just, you may just happen to hear me on the radio on Sportsnet 590, the fan in Toronto. Um, and and that's pretty much it. I mean, uh, I'll be I'll be roaming near where where Edzy lives more so than than where Sean lives. So yep. I don't know. You never know where you're going to find me, but I'll be somewhere. All uh, right. Stop on by for a beer, man. Yeah, man. Uh, for sure. Thank you so much for being here, Matt. Uh, thank you so much, Edzie, for, for that wonderful story. And my goodness, uh, until next time, uh, I'm Sean. And I'm Eds. And we were doing the baseball. Okay. Uh, take care. Goodbye. Go, go baseball.